You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the House of Literature. My name is Andreas Delset. I'm the artistic director here at the House. And I'm very happy uh, to be able to welcome you here on a very special day. Uh, exactly 30 years ago, uh, Nelson Mandela, to South Africans known as Madiba, was released from prison. Hence, the day has come to signify the beginning of the end of the apartheid white minority rule in South Africa. The release of Mandela also marked the release of many of his fellow comrades from prisons uh, and the lift of the ban of the ANC and the other liberation organizations, which also meant that many people who had been forced into exile could, from this day onwards, return to South Africa. One of those people who returned uh, 30 years ago and 30 years almost after leaving South Africa uh, was Njabula Ndebele, whom we are so incredibly honored to have here with us today. Ndebele was born just outside Johannesburg in 1948 and is the author of several books of essays, poetry and fiction. If I was to mention just one, it would have to be the genre-expanding novel The Cry of Winnie Mandela, a collective portrait of four women on, um, who have spent their lives waiting for the return of their men. Also worth mentioning on such a day as this is the fact that Ndebele is today the chairperson of the Nelson Mandela Foundation and is the former principal and vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town. One of the students during his time as vice chancellor at UCT, which is the name that is commonly used for the University of Cape Town, uh, was Koleka Butuma. Born in Port Elizabeth in 1993, which means Butuma belongs to the generation that is often referred to in South Africa as the born freeze, she's the author and creator of several critically acclaimed theater plays, but Potuma is probably most well known for her debut poetry collection from 2007, a Collective Amnesia. It has had a huge impact in South Africa and abroad, including several translations and with an imprint still running, uh, making Potuma, according to Wikipedia, and uh, we're not sure if it's verified, but still it's pretty uh, fascinating, the best-selling poet in South African history. And in this poetry collection, one can sense the anger and frustration with broken promises and the country where apartheid perhaps did not end after all, uh, and where the legacy uh, of Mandela uh, about reconciliation through truth and prosperity for the rainbow nation is far from being fulfilled. We are so incredibly happy and honored to have Kollega Potuma and Njubulu Ndebele here tonight in conversation with a journalist in Mornblade, Elisa Dyvig. Please give them a warm welcome. I think I'd like to start with February 11th, 1990, uh, this day 30 years ago. Um, 
Could I ask you, where were you and what was going through your mind that day? Okay. Well, first of all, before I answer the question, I'd just like to say what an, an honor it is to, to be invited to come and, and uh, participate in this event uh, today at this very special place and uh, where uh, Nelson Mandela and uh, Mr. Declet, not far away from here, which I visited yesterday, got the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, with uh, Declet, who saw signs that the past must go, and, and Mandela, who saw signs that the future has to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, it's a very special thing at, at home going on now, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful feeling to be here mm -hmm. uh, on this day. So you, you were asking about where I was mm -hmm. uh, on, uh, on that day. I was actually in Johannesburg, mm -hmm. uh, visiting my cousin uh, in, in Soweto, who lives just across the famous Paraguanath Hospital. Uh, um, and and uh, that we were, we, were, we were all watching uh, the television, waiting, and, and it was taking very, very long time mm -hmm. because you know, they were just not appearing. Uh, but uh, finally they did, and it was a, a momentous uh, occasion, an experience for me. I, had, I happened to have been there because I was still, actually still living in Lesotho mm -hmm. and had, had come for some conference or something. and went to, So it happened on that day. But perhaps a, a, a vivid memory on that particular day is mm -hmm. that I then decided to go and back to the city where I was staying in Johannesburg in a hotel. And I was driving through the streets and I saw a crowd of people coming in my way. And I wasn't sure whether it was a, a friendly or a happy crowd or an angry crowd. And because when you see a mass of people coming like that, um, it's frightening and exhilarating all at once. And I decided that it's probably better to do a U10. <laughs> and, 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 and go away from it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was subsequently to see many other crowds uh, who had invaded the streets. And in order for you to, 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 to let go, you, you had to throw your fist out of the window and say, Amanda, and then they let you go. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's how it was that day, so we all played that game. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's where I was. Okay, Amazing. And you weren't there because you weren't born. Yeah. Um, not until three years later. Um, what did that sort of moment and... I guess, or how it has come to people who, who didn't live there, of that sort of iconic image of Mandela and Vinnie going, walking through the crowd. Um, what has that image or that moment meant or represented to you? Um, okay, so I was born in 1993, <coughs> so clearly I wasn't there. Um, I don't know what was popping. Um, but... Uh, my relationship with that image is, I think, exactly that, that it's, it's an image, mm. an image that I've seen uh, 
mostly through uh, learning or through um, the education system. Um, not one that I really have a close relationship with. So when I think about that image or think about this day, I don't kind of have like a, a nostalgic relationship to it. Um, but more one that's kind of like um, a distance relationship with that image, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that moment and that day is uh, very present and um, uh, sort of explored in your book, um, The Cry of Vinnie Mandela, where as mentioned, there are these women and she is sort of a figure uh, running along their lives. Um, how, how did you end up writing a book with the presence of Vinnie Mandela? Well, it's a very long story. I, I think that the, the interest in Winnie Mandela predates it by several years, the actual day that Madiba came, came out, mm. and, and also that the interest developed very much when I was, uh, I was still in exile in Lesotho mm. and hadn't re returned home. <clears throat> and in fact, uh, so I had an abiding interest. I, the, the, the book started off as a, as a, as a reflective essay on what's going on, because mm. Winnie embodies these contradictions. On the one hand, uh, a very uh, revolutionary person, uh, courageous, also extraordinarily loving mm. and, and caring. And then you also read about other stuff like this happening, like the, the death, the mysterious death of a uh, 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 CPA and and uh, and all the incidents that happened uh, around it. Mm. So, from 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 a, a creative writer's perspective, is is fascinating to ponder the thought: is is this the same person? Mm. And it turns out she is the same person, mm. but but. Uh, who, who behaves differently uh, in, according to a different set of circumstances. Mm. And I was fascinated by that. But the specific uh, thing that got me to go further was, uh, was the day that uh, I witnessed on television when I was still in Lesotho, the day the mass democratic movement decided to take a, a tough and unprecedented step of distancing themselves from Winnie Mandela, mm. who, uh, according to a lot of, of stories confirmed, uh, had something to do with the establishment of uh, the Nelson Mandela Football Club, mm. which uh, ma many people uh, felt terrorized the community. And, and uh, uh, something that uh, I will, you asked me to read something yeah. later is part of the anger uh, resulted in a, a crowd of young people burning the house that Mandela lived in with him during those days. Mm. Uh, that was a, a, 
just a horrific thing to happen to a, a, an icon's house that, that carried so much history. But it happened. Uh, on the day that uh, it was announced that uh, she, she's on her own, they're distancing themselves, uh, I understood that, but I also intuited in me a very lonely person mm. uh, who, 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 who must now had to contend with a form of abandonment, uh, but it didn't totally destroy her all the same. So it was really that at that moment the, 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 the contradiction between the horror on the one hand and, and, and an understanding, but also on the other hand, I felt drawn to her mm. as a person and feeling, intuiting a very deep sense of loneliness. And that whether, that, 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 whether that's how she actually felt or not mm. is another matter, but that's how I felt and that led to the writing of the novel. And, uh, and reading it, uh, you do sense very strongly how these women have a very complicated uh, view of her or relationship with her. Um, and so I actually wondered if now could be the time you'd you read this uh, passage from, from the book. And if you just could talk a bit about who is, who is, um, uh, who is speaking. Okay. Or who is writing. Okay. In, in this uh, portion that you asked me to read, yes. it's, it's being told by one of the, the, the four imaginary women who uh, meet every, every day, every week, every week, once every week. To, this was very common in the township uh, for women to come together, especially uh, uh, against the, the subject of waiting because Often men were away for, for various reasons, some political reasons, others uh, uh, for mi migrant labor, for economic reasons, and then others, and this is the one who, you, whose section of, is, he, he, her husband is away from home for nothing as heroic as the others. It's just someone who, who had, decided uh, that she's had enough with a stable family and, and is going to go out and, and just lead a life of, 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 of uh, his own. Mm -hmm. And so he's not away for any particular reason that's heroic. And she leaves then, she contemplates uh, that. And, and of course, it's, it's not an accident that she, she ponders the meaning of home. Mm -hmm. And, and this, what, what is home? Mm -hmm. uh, home and dislocation. That is the experience of millions of victims of forced removals. Sophia Town, Lime Hill, Dimbaza, Morshat, Vinan, Stenkwater, Duduza, and many other across the land. These symbols of dislocation. Mass stories of people who built homes and communities and then watched them demolished by apartheid's bulldozers. In a country where many homes have been demolished and people moved to strange new places, home temporarily becomes the shared experience of homelessness 
the fellow feeling of loss and the desperate need to regain something. But where and how? It is in such circumstances that one may resort to the pretense of normalcy. At some point, the pretense of transforms into rage. Home and exile, building and demolition, roots and rootlessness. No wonder we are given to extremes of behavior. In between is a void. They have a long history, these extremes of behavior. In a country of such dislocation, is a country of such dislocation a home? Winnie, where were many who hoped that the sight of you and Nelson walking hand in hand down the street would, would represent the beginning of the reconciliation of extremes, the end of dislocation? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely. And that last line touches on that great promise that lie where in that moment, in that image, uh, suggesting that the experience that followed might have been more, filled with more tension, I guess. Um, before we sort of address that, I just wanted to ask both of you, these last 30 years, has there been, has there been a specific kind of pressure or expectation when it comes to South African literature and what it, um, what kind of space it should fill in sort of addressing these issues and topics that, yeah. Hmm. If you have any stuff um, you? I think it's different for um, different groups of people. Hmm. Um, I guess it depends on what uh, each generation or each, uh, or what groups of people are kind of concerned about. Um, I think that the pressure on my generation particularly, or I don't want to use the word pressure, but the concern has been, uh, in the literature space, has been how to um, have conversations around what it means to be a black uh, young person in South Africa today, um, and what it means to be um, uh, an educated black somebody in, in post-apartheid South Africa today. Mm. Um, and you have different kinds of narratives coming out of um, different groups of people depending on the context that you come from. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a thing of <laughs> what is the biggest concern to you um, and what it is that you feel like is most important to write about and most important to center mm -hmm. in the things that you write about. Um, and I think the thing that's been at the center for my generation has been issues around um, where South Africa is for us and what it means for us, uh, issues around identity, issues around um, employment issues around how we self-actualize in a country that is so um, still divided and still so um, unequal. Mm. Um, 
and so the and also but also how to um actualize the other parts of ourselves that the world doesn't necessarily uh care to learn about so the parts of us that um are interested in joy and love and like seemingly mundane things when the world only wants to read about like the traumatic parts about being a black south african or a black young south african mm-hmm. so how do we write literature that counters that narrative um or how do we center you know narratives that kind of um disrupt that narrative that people are always drawn to mm-hmm. um i feel like there's a pressure on a lot of young people to kind of write narratives um about that i mm-hmm. guess I think I, I will I will uh, jump onto on exactly that point in in a colleague's uh, re- reflection as as a point of of a kind of convergence, mm. uh, specifically uh, about identity uh, in South Africa now, mm. and basically the way I see it schematically. Uh, very briefly, is you, we have lived in a country of where the majority of the human beings were black people. And the, my, and the minority and the black people were oppressed by a small minority of white people yeah. who designated themselves as such. And, and everybody else who was non-white uh, was, had to be treated uh, differently. And uh, now, it was an artificial thing because uh, it was a white country formally, but a black country informally. The formality of the white society created an environment that all black people have to respond to every day of their lives. As soon as they left the township to go to work, mm-hmm. and even when they were back in the township, they, they lived that life uh, of, of your life being officially a crime because as soon as you go out, you are in danger of breaking the law in one way or another. Mm-hmm. So. That was uh, the, the experience of oppression, therefore, was a, a majority experience, and the experience of oppressing was a minority. So if you say, what is South, Af- South Africa as a white country, formally, but a black country, uh, informally? Mm-hmm. What, what uh, intrigued me as, as, a, as a budding writer when I was beginning to be aware of things I was aware of just how the extent of the black imagination, literary imagination of the environment, was dominated by the world that had been created by white people. Because you had to respond to it with the characters and the things that, the things that happen and everything. I understood why this kind of, of writing occurred. But I felt that I could not continue to write in that way because I was dissatisfied with something. Mm-hmm. And the something was that uh, black people who were experiencing the oppression, who 
had to start to explore the meaning of their own lives, even in the township. Mm. And that, and that uh, uh, someone should feel free to read, to write a poem about the beauty of the sunset. Mm. Because if, even, in, even in the grimy township, sometimes there's a miraculous moment that the sun shines on this ugliness in a particular way and it's beautiful, you know, for, for that time. And, and it's lovely. Why couldn't someone write about that? No. Why, why couldn't someone write about ordinary boys playing soccer in the street? Mm. Because that, that in itself socializes them into working together mm. uh, in teamwork. And, and they learn certain things. So we, we learned, therefore, that that kind of thing mm. is not revolutionary enough. So I, I took a chance mm. uh, to say, I will write about that, yeah. uh, but write about it in a, way, in a way that the act of doing so was itself a political act, mm. because, uh, but of a different kind. Yeah. And so what, what uh, particularly pleases me today in the writings that I read by, by young people, I, I just... I just found that after a, a life of a, I stopped teaching and was busy running universities is a nice thing, but you get alienated from the beautiful things of life, like writing books. <laughs> but I started, I, started, I started now, I've made a resolution, I'm going to look, start reading the new writings by young writers I've not been aware of because I was busy doing mm. other things. It's extraordinary, beautiful writing that's coming up, just what I had dreamed for of mm. uh, all those years. Huh. Mm. It's, uh, I'd like to uh, then move <coughs> on to your, uh, uh, your collection, Kuleka, but uh, I'd um, first, on the biographical aspect, I'm thinking of, as you mentioned earlier, sort of growing up with history, not as something you've lived through, but something that is something that is teached, or, or something that you have much more of a um, formal, distant relation to. I'm also wondering how it is growing up with phrases like the born free generation or the rainbow nation, how it is growing up with those two phrases, really. Um. Um, I guess uh, history is a strange thing because... Um, you uh, you you grow up with uh, things being uh, passed down to you that you are supposed to have a relationship with, mm. but it's not really yours. It belongs to other people or people who have lived through it. Um, but you kind of have a weird sense of attachment to it because it affected the people who raised you uh, or who have raised you. And so in a way, it... It, it, it didn't really affect you, but it does affect you in the way that it's kind of then passed down to you. Um, so, you know, kind of, I'm referred to as like a born free, which is strange because I was born in 1993 and freedom kind of came in 94. So that's strange. Like I missed it by a year, but I kind of made it. So I don't know now. I'm like on the fence. It's like, did I make it? Did I not? So, um, and kind of like this expectation 
as a born free to embrace the the freedom that was kind of passed down or or that the 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 older generation kind of handed to us or fought for um and to kind of take on like this baton in a way and kind of run with it and to kind of feel a sense of empowerment because of it because you're born free and you're now living in a time of you know freedom or freedom of speech or freedom of movement or freedom of being but it's strange because the 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 term kind of suggests all of those things and to kind of run with, with the sense of like I'd like to use the metaphor of running because it kind of suggests like this the sense of like weightlessness and the sense of like being unburdened but nothing about like the so south africa kind of went through the the transition or became like a democratic country but nothing about the structure changed or mm. changes and so in a way the the burdens of being black and being women and being queer are still there so you expected to kind of run with the sense of freedom but you have all of this baggage and all of this passed down um history and trauma and so you are born free but you are born um weighted if that makes sense and you kind of born um uh having to unlearn and kind of undo a lot of the um stuff that was passed down to you. Yeah. So that's been an interesting uh, and challenging thing to grapple with as a born free. Mm. Um and then similarly like the the idea of the rainbow nation that when I was born schools were integrated and you, I went to school with all different different types of people so there were white people in my class there were indians there were asians there were muslims there were christians um and we were supposed to like you know hold hands and lock arms and sing kumbaya my lord and <coughs> skip off into the sunset and smile and show the world that we were like this unified like happy family but there was like a strangeness in that because there was a lot of things unsaid within in like society and you could still you know even like in our family structures you you were kind of sent off to school but you were sent off to school with like certain cautions and certain like um things that were kind of put in your mind that that let you know that like white kids were still superior than you mm-hmm. um and so even if we were like this happy family and there was a rainbow nation but there was still like this weird kind of divide and and um hierarchy of like class and race that still existed in like the fiber of society mm-hmm. and so these terms exist but the the lived reality or the truth of these terms were not they were not real so really what they were they were just terms and most of the time even today still they terms to kind of use to suppress a lot of like the the ugliness and a lot of the the residue of apartheid that's still there mm. and it's terms that kind of get thrown around so that we don't actually get to like the the wound of the problem mm. um and it's kind of used as like a um a, a, a polite dinner conversation uh topic uh umbrella term you know so that we kind of have these very polite conversations around what it means to be South African and to be unified and to be born free but we don't really have an actual conversation about like how fucked up a lot of 
that is. Hmm. And I wonder if you could now read the poem Teaching. Cool. Yeah. Um, love to read. You have the page now? Or? Yes. Yes, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so the book is divided into three chapters. The first chapter being uh, inherited memory, the second being buried memory, and the third being post-memory. So teachings is in post-memory. Transparency, noun, a weapon used to exercise a lineage of silence, talk, noun, a medicine used to heal years of silence, writing, noun, a doctrine used to deliver one from the ills of silencing, share, noun, a tool used to dismantle a learned behavior of suffering alone in silence, publishing, verb, a middle finger to the erasure and silencing of women like me, archiving, verb, a fuck you to the canon. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, and as, as you've uh, just spoken about this sort of, it's not, not necessarily a process of learning, but a question of unlearning. Um, how, how, what has that, that process been like for you in terms of whether, what kind of narratives, you've, you've spoken about it just now, but in terms of when did you start sort of questioning that kind of passed down knowledge in terms of how you should view and think about what had happened and your own place here and now? Oof, oof, oof. <laughs> uh, I think when I went to university, mm -hmm. uh, so I grew up in, uh, well, I mostly grew up in uh, Balville, which is in the northern suburb or the northern part of Cape Town, which is very different to the southern suburbs, uh, which is where I went to to university, um, and so the, the, um, the experiences of both those places are very different. So mm -hmm. even though they're like uh, bougie, uh, upper-class places in the northern suburb, it's still, it still has kind of, most of the places there still have the, the feelings or a vibe of like a small town, so there's a small town mentality where, you know, um, certain uh, identities are allowed uh, or certain ways of thinking um, are, are allowed and others are kind of like questions, questioned or felt as strange. And so when I went to university, I kind of encountered a lot of different people. There were people who were barefoot. I didn't understand that shit, not for one second. I was just like, where are your shoes? Like, where are your shoes? Why do you have flowers around your hair? Like, what's going on here? And so I, d I encountered all these different, like, ideologies and beliefs through other people. And that was also, like, the first um, time that I... Because I never really experienced it in the high school syllabus or in mm. the primary school syllabus, where I started to see or understand that what I was taught in school might not have been the full truth mm. of... Yeah, what I had been taught. And um, and then I started to realize that I would only get the full um, story or the full sense of who I was 
what the context I was living in was through conversations or having conversations with people, having conversations with my family, having conversations with lecturers or friends or uh, other other, um, people. And that's when I started to realize that there was a lot of undoing that had to be done. Mm. um, And there was a lot of um, investment, uh, for lack of a better word, that I had to do in teaching myself a lot of the things that were not taught to me. Mm. Um, But I think university, kind of the institution, um, not the institution itself, but the environment of the institution kind of really prompted that, like, yeah, something's not 100% in the neighborhood. And I need to understand, like, you know, like when you watch a movie and you, okay, so you know when you watch a movie and you can see that the character is walking into a situation and they start to like click that the situation, and this happens in horror movies a lot, and they start to click that where I am and what's happening is like not 100% what I thought is happening. And so I have to do like a lot of investigating and I have to kind of go into the rooms where the killer might be to kind of like figure out the situation. (laughs) And so I feel like that's kind of like what happened to me in a way. I'm like, I need to kind of open this door of like learning in an attempt to unlearn certain things, but I might encounter some trauma or some wounds there that might like kind of, um, that might not have the effect on me that I think they might have, but I think it might be good for me mm-hmm. so that I can get to the other side of what I think this is. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, perfect sense. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and the sort of different experiences of education, and uh, because you went to boarding school in Swaziland, um, which uh, my understanding is that quite... Many parents in South Africa sent their children outside uh, of the country uh, because one wanted to avoid the Bantu education. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what you escaped uh, with not having the Bantu education. Um, I think it's uh, both what I escaped from as well as uh, what I missed. Right. And, and um, what, what I escaped from, from the point of view of my parents, mm-hmm. who, who sent me to Swaziland, it, it was uh, away from Bantu education. And of course, Bantu education was designed specifically under the Fervudian vision mm-hmm. of, uh, of apartheid. He actually said that uh, black people uh, cannot be educated beyond certain levels and it's because their jobs are to work for, for white people, mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. So that, that world of Fervut did not permit uh, someone becoming a lawyer, a doctor, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so on. You could become a teacher because, you know, there were black schools and, and so on. But you, the, the, the bigger professions, engineering, were mm-hmm. totally outside. Um, and missionary schools, that had uh, provided an education as, in, in many cases, as, as good as uh, what, that in white schools, were shut down by, by, the, by the government, the party government, precisely because they didn't want that kind of thing. So 
there were parents who decided that uh, let's take our kids out, and mm -hmm. it was either Lesotho, uh, a little bit Botswana, but most Lesotho and Swaziland, mm -hmm. and a, a bit of Botswana to go and, and, and get an, an education there. So that, those were the circumstances that put me there. Mm. But uh, I, I, I quickly learned in, in, in Lesotho that there was a, in, in, in Swaziland, that there was another enemy who, who had been very distant in South Africa, but had caused all this problem. Mm. The British uh, and government. Yeah. And, and I, I, I realized that uh, uh, the the uh, Swaziland was a protectorate, was a British protectorate. Mm. So we had we South Africans in particular uh, didn't like having to sing the the God Save the Queen mm. as the the, the 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 national the national anthem. And uh, we 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 and and uh, the the school itself was was really designed to produce a little Englishman out of us. Uh, <laughs> we had to learn how to, uh, I shared the other, you had to speak English by force of, of school law uh, from Monday to Friday. And then on Saturday, huh, you could speak Zulu <laughs> and, uh, and Sisutu or, or whatever the case might be. And if you are caught speaking uh, your language uh, in the week, uh, the, it was the duty of the prefects to take down your name, mm. and so there was some punishment that followed. But let me, having said that, uh, in in many other ways, it was a, a very good, challenging education. Mm. Uh, we were taught by by many South African exiles, both black and white, mm. who were escaping from apartheid, who who came to learn, uh, to teach in in, in Swaziland. Mm. Uh, a lot of South Africans also leaving the country, where became teachers in Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana. Um, my, my, my mother, my father had actually got a job to go and teach in Ghana, but mm -hmm. my father said, my mother said, not on your life. <laughs> so so they, we, you know, we stayed at home. And, and so the long and short of it uh, mm -hmm. is that I, I found a, a something liberating, but mm -hmm. alienating at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, just a, a little bit to the theme that you, you explored, just uh, it's, it's it's really that uh, you 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 keep you keep uh, encountering all kinds of identities, mm -hmm. and how do you get out of it? And 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 I think this is what leads to the frustration today, yeah. because there are so many identities, many of them are right inside of you. But you want to get out, but you 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 respond in reflex ways, mm. in ways that you wouldn't otherwise want to behave in that way. It takes a lot of ex excavation and self-reflection, mm. and in in that tricky moment in in the crying in Mandela novel when they are reflecting, I think it's Winnie who's writing about her herself mm. uh, about. Well, we know that when they finally divorced, um, Nelson Mandela in, in the court said, uh, the, uh, 
the accused. She has a very strange way of addressing your wife, you know, but the, the accused or whatever it is, the, is the legal term, uh, never came, came to my bedroom, to the bedroom, when I was awake. Uh, I think he was implying, he says somewhere that married people uh, talk when they're in bed, there's pillow talk, and they solve a lot of things. Mm. Clearly, they never had a chance to solve a lot of things mm. uh, because Winnie uh, certainly uh, was, not, was not ready to become a, an ordinary housewife. Mm. And, and Madiba himself, I'm not sure that uh, he, he could have been uh, the, a different kind of of husband, mm. uh, he, he may have Im imaginatively sought to do so, but there may be, I think there was something imperious about him and, and, and that, uh, that, that would not necessarily sit comfortably with a, a woman like Winnie who mm. had been so free yeah. and, and independent. And I, I don't think that they ever had this kind of depth of conversation between themselves. Mm -hmm. So can you imagine, therefore, uh, it's a whole country, millions of people, men who have gone to the mines, mm -hmm. didn't come back. Or if they came, they came back, they hide the fact that they left families behind. Mm -hmm. And maybe they find a, a, a child that they didn't... Yeah you know, were responsible for. Mm. So th there's all that stuff in the, in the book, mm. uh, but it's real life. And how do you begin a national conversation mm. uh, that begins to address these issues? I believe that even family life, mm. which is why this uh, woman that I read from is, is agonizing about what is home? Because family life uh, among, was, was actually an attempt to destroy Af African family life mm -hmm. from the beginning uh, when uh, laws were passed mm -hmm. to get a man away uh, to go so that the, the, into the modern cash economy mm -hmm. so they can buy and work for a, a wage to pay tax and, and all those things. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how it was dismantled mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and land taken away in 19... 13 Land Act, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a formidable uh, challenge for a whole nation to, to deal with this. And it calls for certain kinds of, com of commitments, mm -hmm. a certain kind of visionary leadership, mm -hmm. uh, a certain kind of uh, purposefulness in, in governing mm -hmm. uh, that uh, were does everything possible to stay in touch with the needs down there and begin to address them, even in the sense of responsibility that uh, even, the f even, uh, even though it may have been problematic to pay tax for the past, in the past, uh, you, you have to pay for electricity now, mm. you have to pay for the water now, mm. but how do you do that when the wages are so low and, and all. But all those, I'm trying to say, all those are things that have to be talked about yeah. as a matter of, of public conversations mm. to grasp with the complexity 
of it, as well as the necessity of it. Mm. Mm. And uh, both of you, how do you sort of feel? I would, I will come to the legacy of Mandela, but first the legacy of apartheid in South Africa today. And well, could you say a bit about how you experience how this question of whether things really ended, and in terms of um, where was I going with this? Mm. Um, <laughs> the legacy, legacy yeah. of apartheid, really. Oh, you can't sort of say, now it's over, and now everything is completely new and different. I mean, um, it's so strange to listen to you talk about, like, a lot of the, um, the way things were uh, back in your day or how you were growing up. And, you know, I, I think we were talking about this in the cab when we were yeah. coming uh, from mm. Bergen, about the, something as simple as the fact that, you know, you were not allowed to speak your language Monday to Friday. Mm -hmm. And how, for me, that's, it's so strange because a lot of schools are still like that today, where a lot of young people, you know, get sent yeah, to I detention or get punished that, yeah. for speaking <clears throat> to each other in their own or in their mother tongue. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, you have to speak English or you have to converse in English. Um, and how the legacy of that is still like running uh, through the through the spot like through South Africa today you know and how like structurally like a lot of things um, so laws have formally changed but structurally like things haven't really changed and black people are still um, at the receiving end of a lot of uh, inequality in South Africa you know like spatial the spatial planning project is still very much a thing. Um, the legacy of uh, the, the conversation, um, the ability to have conversation as people that you were talking about, you know, like the, it, it almost feels as if they, we've inherited like a, a legacy of silence or a legacy of um, non-conversation in a way, where there can't necessarily be a, a true dialogue between people. Um, I, I f yeah, I think that that's, that, that it's, supposed, it's changed, but a lot hasn't changed structurally. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think it also has a, a lot to do with uh, how that kind of, uh, I once used the expression, uh, to make public spaces intimate. Mm. Uh, in other words, that kind of that kind of conversation uh, should be should should long become normal, and there have been a lot of stories written that people share uh, about you know uh, where 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 were you in if you are white mm. where, where were you in uh, in 1956 or 57 mm. when there was a, a, a potato boycott. Mm. And the reason that there was a potato boycott, it was because um, uh, prison labor, people were arrested in order to be in large numbers to be sent as, as, as workers in farms, you know, outside in, 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 Beth, in Bethel. So um, I, I, I'm always curious when I, I meet someone who is my age mm. and I say, where were you? What, what were you doing in 1956 uh, when uh, 
because they, they, the, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that the, the, the degree of culpability mm. was always one that was accepted uh, willingly. Mm. Uh, if, if you consider the fact that in, in 1993, I think, or 92, uh, there was a, a, a referendum in South Africa to mm. test uh, white population. Mm. I think people forget that 68% uh, of the white electorate mm. said, we want to try this thing. Mm. That's a big number mm. uh, against 31% that was, not, was, was uncertain. Mm. Uh, but the fact that it was not a universal thing uh, means that into, into the new country, you bring in unresolved tensions. Mm. So there, there is the, the 68% that I think today we often forget. With, we, sometimes we paint everyone with the same brush, mm. but there's a lot of people who are tired of the situation mm. before, during apartheid, mm. are, are tired of the, the, the resilience of, of some of, the, of those things. I think they, they cut across the Kumbaya group they're, they're black, they're white, they're Indians, they're Africans. And uh, I, think, I think a lot of South Africans are tired of the situation. Mm. And, and, uh, but there isn't, they haven't found a voice mm. to articulate uh, their, their wishes. And the issue of leadership comes in, because most South Africans say, who's there now you know, to lead? And, and the conversation like, ah, we can't find anyone. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa now is is a, a was a, was to the in the view of many a, a good choice, mm -hmm. uh, but but he finds that he's in an environment uh, that is fraught mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of people who started who, who put us in this mess and and are still there. And, and the system is not able to get rid of them. Mm. So the fact that the system can't get rid of them causes more frustrations mm. uh, in the general uh, public. So the, the issue of uh, what now is a question on everyone's mind. Even if uh, you were to, even if you were to uh, arrest and try all those people implicated in state capture, mm. okay, they are all sent into jail. And then what? Mm. Because as you know, you still have that question. Yeah. What kind of society? Who who is going to lead the the, the these are hanging questions mm. that, that are, are, are urgent uh, today. But yeah, yeah, sure. No, but I was just kind of also thinking that a lot of um, a lot of thinking work or a lot of uh, mobilization work. Uh, or activism work requires time and or the luxury of time and space. Mm -hmm. And I think what capitalism is so successful in doing is kind of bogging us down with um, a number of priorities that kind of take a lot of people away from the luxury of having the time to think about other possibilities or to mm -hmm. think about um, 
ways of self-actualizing outside of like, you know, the white gaze or capitalism and all these other things. Mm. And so it's such a, it's an interesting question that you ask that, okay, these people are get sent to jail. Okay, we have a, a society that's not ruled by anyone. Then what, you know? Mm. It's like, will we have the time to not be like grinding and working mm-hmm. um, or feeding ourselves back into a system that doesn't uh, necessarily um, give back to us what we are worth? Mm-hmm. And will we have the time to kind of sit with those questions um, outside of like the constant like nine to five grind that a lot of people have to do to mm-hmm. feed themselves, to make sure that you know, people are clothed and people are eating? You know, um, mm-hmm. I just think so much of like our time as people goes into like building up the system mm-hmm. or feeding back into the system that we kind of don't necessarily have this the <coughs> the space or most people don't have the space or the capacity to kind of um, I don't know if I 100% believe this to dream or to kind of see. Um, other possibilities. I might change my mind in five minutes, but I was just kind of like <laughs> thinking about that as you were talking. Yeah. But I think it's a, it's a very profound ob- observation uh, on, the, on the issue of, uh, of, of time. Mm. And uh, t- t- take the issue of uh, in which uh, you have to... Um, about family life. Mm. The, the, a lot of a lot of people of, of uh, women and men uh, still wake up very early in the morning mm. don't spend a lot of time with their children because they mm. have to go to work mm. and they come back very late at night so where do you get even the time to to spend with your children mm. uh, outside when you are far away and they are at school so the, the, the system still demands, take uh, the, 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 town, the township environment. The townships were built to be labor uh, reservoirs. Mm-hmm. Even today, they, they, they are there to export their energies. Mm. The other day, uh, the, in the last couple of years, they started something like the rapid bus transit system. Uh, they say that system uh, will get people to work quickly. Um, so st- get them to work quickly mm. is, is that if, so even, even when you think you are making an improvement, mm. you are actually improving the, the malady. Mm. Uh, you, know, you know, things get worse, yeah. even as you think you are improving it. Mm. Uh, so... It, it just seems to me that there's, uh, there's a, a total, a total revisioning of of the whole, with the way the, the whole society works. I still I still don't understand why the system today has has people that continue to earn so much, and others get very little. Mm. Surely it's the system. Uh, the way the economics has been worked out, mm. surely something can be done about it mm. that's even drastic and, and even you know, radical, uh, 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 even changing the, 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 
day, the time of the day, mm -hmm. so people can spend a little more time together and then go to work at about 10 o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. and, and uh, come back uh, at home earlier. That kind of thing is, is basic. Mm -hmm. But in other words, the, the, the township ha has got in, in my dream of dreams mm -hmm. is South Africa today won't, won't make it if the economy is still tied to the cities and the towns as we have them today. I call it, uh, the economy must move from Sentin to Soweto. Mm. Be because that's where, yeah. that's where the, you know, it's happening. Yeah. Um, uh, because, you know, Tanzania is, is, is more lively than the, the city center. Mm. A lot is going on in, in, in Tanzania, but people still think that the town, mm. you know, is where you should be. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's got to change completely. Mm. I think when I come across sort of readings about the sort of the, especially, well, the last decade has seen a lot of uh, big, big student protests, uh, both connected to fees and sort of decolonization of, of the education system. Um, so much of that sort of impatience and frustration and anger seems to be connected to what you were speaking about earlier in terms of we've promised so much and this feeling of but we have so little. Um, I mean, is, is that a sort of fair criticism in terms of taking that sort of sense of frustration and putting it on Mandela being too optimistic about what we were going to get when apartheid was over, um, mm. if you understand what I'm... Is that a fair sort of connection? Well, I, I, I don't think it's fair. Mm. Um, uh, I, I, I think that... Uh, um, the fact is, in the first five years of uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, Presidency, mm. millions of people got houses, mm. uh, got people got water. Mm. Millions of people, even in the in the squatter camps, uh, got electricity. Mm. Uh, the number of uh, school-going children uh, doubled, tripled. Mm. Uh, millions started going to school, being assured of an education, if not mm. even if it was poor. Uh, in higher education, when 1994 uh, came, uh, the blacks in, in, in the schooling system were just about four, 400,000. Mm. They are more than a million now. Mm. So, um, so there are um, many uh, decisive things mm. that were promised in the five year, first five years, which were given, mm. even what were called RDP houses and, and, and so on and so forth. Since then, uh, you may, what, what, what could have happened after Mandela was to say, okay, are we, are we able to, to what extent are we able to sustain the things that we, we, we added and introduced? Mm. And, and if, if those questions were asked at that point, maybe we wouldn't have the ESCOM problem with, electri with electricity. Mm -hmm. Maybe we wouldn't be having the schooling system so in such 
particularly for black people mm -hmm. in such an abject condition. So I, I think that the first, it can be argued mm -hmm. that the first five, five years delivered something. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the question is, I think actually that uh, Madiba uh, was too keen, the critique, criticism I have was probably too keen to please the outside world and say, I'm going to rule for five years, to govern for five <coughs> years, and then resign. He was making the point that you people who are in power forever, mm -hmm. uh, but we lost out on his leadership mm. uh, for, I think he needed another five years at least uh, to consolidate uh, the gains, mm. you know, but he left too quickly. Mm. Uh, but I think he was, he was just convinced, I have to show them, you know, that uh, you, must, you must leave after five years. <laughs> but, but, you know, we lost out in the end. Do you have uh, um, some thoughts on that? I think it goes to the things that you were saying, that South Africa is a country that's gone through uh, multiple presidencies. And so to solely put um, a demise or the lack of uh, promise fulfillment on one mm. person is um, bizarre. But I think that there's a leadership issue um, within that party or in South Africa, just in general. Mm. Um, and also just a lack of... Um, I think that you can rule for five years and fuck off. Honestly, like five years is a long time. But I think that just generally that there's a lack of um, going back to what, um, how do I put this? Going back to why they started that movement in the first place and what the agenda was and why it was that those promises were put there in the first place mm -hmm. and why it was important for those promises to be fulfilled. And so I think that the agitation now from a lot of uh, young people comes from the fact that it feels like that vision or that agenda or uh, why things will start is kind of like lost. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like every man for himself. Um, and we see that now like in obviously, you know, state capture and all of those things. Um, that, the, that the agenda is no longer uh, country focused, mm -hmm. that it's individual focused. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of skewed a lot of um, people's focus really. Mm. And on, on the, uh, as you mentioned in terms of having the world's eyes on one and how that sort of affects what one does and how one uh, gets to be seen um, in the long run. Um, I was wondering if you could perhaps read your 1994 a love poem. Yes. Yes, thank you. Love to read. <laughs> it's good to read. Children must read. Okay. Uh, 1994, a love poem. I want someone who is going to look at me and love me the way that white people look at and love Mandela. Someone who is going to hold onto my memory the way that white people hold onto Mandela's legacy. A lover who will build Robin Island in my backyard and convince me that I have a garden and fresh air, a rainbow and freedom. A TRC kind of lover you don't know love until you have been loved like Mandela. 
You don't know betrayal until you have been loved like Mandela. You don't know fuckery until you have been loved like Mandela. You don't know msunari until you have been loved like Mandela. And this is one of the many residues of slavery, being loved like Mandela. Thank you. Now I'm sort of divided if I should ask you a question about the poem or should just let it stand like it is. Um, but uh, yes, maybe one question. Um, how is it that sort of white people look at and love Mandela? Could you say a bit about sort of that tension there? Girl. <laughs> <laughs> There's this weird, like... Um, this is not even a word, but like a godification mm. of Nelson Mandela that kind of looks at this uh, human being as without flaws or imperfections or nuance or uh, complications. Mm. And what that has done is that people use him as a symbol and as an event rather than uh, understanding him as a person who's nuanced and complicated. Mm. And so... I think any time that you kind of love... I mean, if you've been in a... Okay, away from Mandela, you know I love my metaphors. We've known each other for an hour now. <laughs> so, you know, when you are in a romantic relationship with someone, I think the moment you kind of uh, impose your expectations of what the other should, person should be, the minute you start to love the other person as like a symbol of something mm. that you kind of expect for them to kind of do or be in your life, is the moment you kind of, the relationship goes to shit in a way, because it's not realistic. The person is a person. They're not like a symbol or they're not like an event or they're not like a, a moment in your life. They're a person. And so I think that the love that white people have for Mandela kind of resembles that weird kind of um, romanticizing someone as like this object mm. and there's a weird way that they hold on to this object and this moment and this event and this symbol of, of someone as a way to kind of like bridge a gap or to, to um, have a relationship with other people in the country that is kind of like weird. And so it's mm. a love that's not like love it's an obsession and it's weird and it's creepy because that love doesn't see you um yeah. it doesn't recognize you as a person it doesn't embrace you for all that you are it's a love that kind of stifles and it's a love that puts you in a box and only allows for you to be the thing that will allow me to feel comfortable and mm. safe and to kind of move in ways that allows for me to make sense of my world. Mm -hmm. And it's not a love that kind of allows for everything else. Yeah, uh, no, wonderful. And so, so lastly, sort of putting that love aside uh, and away, um, what aspect of Mandela's leadership or teachings or biography, if you could say something about his his relevance today, then, uh, to uh, to South Africa in terms of of uh, of uh, one aspect of him that you find particularly relevant. Are you looking at me, or oh, you, would you like to start? Um, well, 
I, I thought Kollega would, would, would latch on to this because it was part of this sort of... Yeah. Okay. The, <laughs> my, 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 my view um, is that um, the, the misuse of, of Mandela mm. in the manner that uh, a colleague has described, mm. which, which uh, I, 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 I agree with, mm. because I've experienced a version of it during the Black Consciousness Movement, mm. when we decided that we no longer wanted to be called white, non-whites, mm. but, but be black. And I was a, a member of the National Union of South African Students, which was a white liberal organization that flourished among uh, South African liberal universities. Mm. Uh, and when you are in there, you realize certain things, or you realized certain things, mm. uh, that there was a, an ostensible solidarity of races, mm. uh, but in the actual living uh, of managing the relationships between, between the fellow students, mm. uh, Certain things the white, the white students couldn't do anything about, but they, they left a, a scar inside. Like, you go to a conference center, which is in a, a white area, and then at night, um, it's time for you, you, you've got to scrounge around, where are you going to sleep? Because if you are caught, in, in that white area, you'll be uh, arrested. Mm -hmm. You've got to be out of town by, by 11 o'clock. Uh, so then you end up finding your way uh, uh, into the township to ask for accommodation you know, somewhere. Mm -hmm. They couldn't do anything about it, but mm -hmm. it, it was a, a reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. but, but also then, uh, the, when, when the black consciousness movement began, it mm -hmm. was, Let's stop uh, hobnobbing with the white liberals, mm. and and uh, the even among the black community itself, mm. the stance to say stop uh, working with uh, socializing with white liberals mm. was was frowned upon, particularly mm. if you came from the non-racial uh, uh, philosophy uh, point of view, yeah. which uh, from the black consciousness perspective we critiqued mm -hmm. as, as, a, as giving away too much uh, at that particular uh, point in time. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I think, uh, therefore, that uh, the, the, the question that you, you ask about uh, what, what, what next mm -hmm. uh, ha has a lot to do, in, from my perspective, with the fact that uh, White South Africans today have to be, have the courage to throw away, uh, I, I won't use a, a colleague's word, word that she may have used, uh, that speaks to the generations between us. Right? So I would use a different expression that they, they, they must uh, get rid of, uh, get rid of, uh, of uh, an, ally an alliance with what I call global whiteness. Mm. And, 
and they must say now, we are here in South Africa. We are South Africans now, and that uh, this is home. This is where we belong. Mm. If they do that, uh, the next task for them is to say, when uh, black, the eth ethnicity in South Africa, it, one of the sort of unexpected benefits, if you might call it that way, yeah. of uh, coming to the mines, working in the factories, is that it's removed for me when uh, a, a, a fear of people who are not Zulu, I'm, mm. I'm also suspicious, because I'm Zulu uh, mm. origin, but I married a Mosutu. Uh, there's a massive intermarriage among, among uh, the, uh, ethnic groups. That, so ethnicity has become porous. Mm. So while, while they may have tried to throw us out there, we actually welded together and has been the political objective since, since uh, 1912. Mm. Uh, I think that it, it is, if there's anything I might call a miracle, mm. it was not black and white coming together as such, mm. but the miracle of uh, uh, extensive multi-ethnic interactions mm. that saw me growing up speaking uh, five languages mm. in, in the township. Mm. And, and, and that, for me, is the South African reality. Mm. If the Constitution says, says that two important values is non-racialism and non-sexism, they forgot one, mm. uh, non-ethnicism, mm. which is an achievement of the South African history that mm. we have. We have, we have, we have so the challenge for white South Africans mm. is to find a way of uh, having been the tribe the white tribe that left itself out, so must try and find a space for themselves mm -hmm. inside this coming together. Mm -hmm. And I think they will feel very different if they succeed in that. Mm. Thank you. And last word to you. Mm, I guess like the, the beauty that uh, has come with uh, that legacy is... Uh, now uh, living in a time where people's legacies and people's um, leaderships can be challenged mm. uh, and critiqued. Um, and also uh, where certain things that have been made to be normal can be disturbed and shaken up a little bit. Mm. Um, and I think we we've seen that in the last couple of years with uh, certain movements and certain things. I mean, like, it's not uh, normal to live um, it's not normal to walk around uh, in an environment where you are constantly reminded of the oppressor or people who have caused you harm um, where Everywhere you go, you kind of see statues that kind of glorify the people who 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 were colonizers and the people who kind of caused harm to a lot of uh, black people in South Africa. And I think now the the beauty of what's happening is that people kind of go, well, that statue does not belong here. It's not normal to go to school or to go to learn and walk past and be reminded of something. Mm. Um, and so that has to go. 
or we have to have a discussion about why that has to go. Mm. And so I think that there's now like a lot of conversations that kind of have come up that question like things that have become the norm that are not supposed to be normal mm. um, and things that kind of complicate things that seem simple, yeah. I guess, is the, is the beauty of um, Mandela because we were kind of given like this normal, perfect figure that is now starting to be picked apart. And I think yeah. that that picking apart has bled into other things. And so we are now starting to pick apart other things mm. and question other things and critique other things um, that has allowed for us to look at ourselves and look at the society that we live in, I guess. I, I, I think we should also be aware that the, the critique, that the, the use of Mandela mm. yeah. uh, in the manner that he, he sometimes gets used is, is actually a, a disservice to the person mm. because the person didn't want to be treated like a god and didn't want to be lionized mm. uh, when uh, to great ex extremes to I think he once characterized himself as a, as a, a, a sinner who's, who's trying to be or, or a saint who was who, who is a sinner or mm. that kind of thing. He had a lot of, uh, of faults, mm. uh, which uh, he admitted to, but, but he left a formidable le legacy mm. of a vision for, he, he thought in, in, a, in, in a total way, mm. uh, of a vision for a country that, whose peoples were working uh, together uh, harmoniously to the extent that they can, have, have overcome the barriers that have, they have inherited, mm. and that it takes a lot of work to overcome that when, when he says, uh, when you climb a mountain, you find that there are many more mountains. Mm. Uh, there. It's never ending. Yeah. Uh, so his view was that you deal with the problems now, mm. there will be more when you have solved these, mm. and more and more, but they, uh, they, w what, what was also, but there was a consistency uh, of, of purpose mm. in, in his uh, of in integrity and and a, a principled purposefulness mm. and an amazing uh, uh, humility mm. uh, and and uh, and w when you have had the opportunity to see him it's just little little things that make mm. him so human mm. is when he he stands when when he's asked to pose for a funeral, for a, a photograph. Mm. He breaks into a smile, you know, like, you, um, it's the self-consciousness of, mm. of looking good uh, for a photograph. Yeah. It's such a human thing mm. that you, 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 you would expect a person of his nature, mm. to, you know, of his standing to be mm. sort of aloof. <laughs> but he responds totally yeah. uh, to he remembers the names of people he has met mm. uh, and all that. And so I think one of the reasons why people revere him mm. is that uh, when he, he met you, just you are the only person that mattered mm. you know, at that particular moment. So I think there are many things that uh, 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 can be at risk or being forgotten. Mm. Uh, if we, 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 we do not remember that mm. there is a bigger yeah. a goal that he lived for. Yeah. 
Mm. And, and that, that goal makes life possible for everyone. Mm. Thank you so much. Our time is up. Uh, but you will be signing copies of your books afterwards. So just, yeah, thank you so much. It was thank wonderful. You. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.